hated politics that were happening at the time, which was the Obama administration, and he hated youth. Anything that was young, he hated. Baggy pants culture, he said. And so we just had great times, conversations as I would come and landscape his house, and he was also a hardened atheist. He hated God. He was not ashamed of saying that. Um, But I would witness to him every week as much as I could. I remember one week he came to me and he had this new reason why he was an atheist. And I know the way that he argued it, he must have just got it straight out of a book. Uh, because he's like, I, got, I know exactly why I don't believe in God. And he said, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, then why is there evil in the world? Doesn't he want to relieve our suffering He said that proves that either God is not all-powerful because he can't get rid of evil, or he's not all-good. Either way, it proves that there is no God, at least as you say there is. And I remember him just kind of sitting back smugly, crossing his arms and smiling. He really thought that he had just killed my God. And I remember just, I just stood for a moment, then I crossed my arms too, and I leaned back and I smiled at him, and I said, that's not a problem for me. You see, the problem of evil, so-called, is a classic argument raised against the existence of God. And if we're honest as Christians, we've been bothered by the fact that there is evil in the world, that there is suffering, that we experience pain. These things bother us too, and we look for answers. Why did God allow sin into his perfect world? Why was there a serpent that was allowed into the paradise in the garden? That's a question we ask ourselves. Despite the many answers, the Jews also wrestled with this question. But they, underneath all of their wrestling, were undergirded with a hope. A hope that when the Messiah came... He would do away with evil. He would put down and judge those who were unrighteous. And he would bless the righteous and establish the kingdom of God. This was the long-awaited hope of the Messiah that he would crush the head of that serpent that was, for reasons that are beyond us, allowed to tempt Eve in the garden. When he established his kingdom, he would bring peace. But the Messiah did come. Jesus everywhere spoke and proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it has come near to you. It is here. The Jews are wondering if if the kingdom is present now, then why is there still evil in the world? I thought Messiah was going to take care of that. And to answer that, Jesus gives this parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Typical, he wants to reveal something of the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God, or else to conceal it. So let's look this morning at Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. And we are going to skip down then to verse 36. For his explanation. Jesus, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but 
While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, do, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the meat weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then skipping down to verse 36. Then he, that is Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this, your word, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name and amen. Jesus puts another parable before them, likening the kingdom of heaven to a man who sowed good seed in his field. However, in an act of bioterrorism, his enemy sows his field with imposters. Now, the ESV is sort of generic here when it says weeds, which weeds in my mind means lots of them, lots of different varieties. But In actuality, Jesus is talking about one weed called a darnel or a tear. And it is sown amongst the wheat. And it is actually not a weed, but a corrupted variety of wheat. It looks just like wheat. And that's why in verse 26 it says, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So the field is sown with good seed. But at night, an enemy comes in and sows a seed that looks like wheat. Its behavior is like wheat. It grows just like wheat. And it's not until it begins to produce grain that you can tell its difference. It is an imposter. And in fact, this was prohibited by law because it was a problem. Somebody, an enemy, would sow a field in Palestine with this weed to corrupt his neighbor's crop. Because if you harvested it with the wheat and then ground it up together, the crop is actually poisonous. It's good for nothing. And so the servants go to the master and they say, We thought that you had put good seed into the ground. Why now that the grain is appearing do we see all of these imposters? How did the tares get into the field? 
And the master, he tells them that this is the work of an enemy. He has sown the field with this imposter. And in verse 37, it says, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. I want you to keep that in mind. The field is the world. It's going to be important as we look later. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age when God will send out his angels to reap both the good seed and the imposter. Most of his explanation is on what happens when the tares are to be harvested. There are many details in this parable that Jesus leaves unexplained. He doesn't say anything bad about the men sleeping at night and the enemy coming. He doesn't comment about why it is that the tares are gathered up first. These things are not important for the parable. And so we don't want to, as I've been saying with the parables, we don't want to take every little detail and try to allegorize it. Try to find meaning where Jesus doesn't give meaning. But we want to look specifically at where Jesus does give meaning. Many of uh, what the, the emphasis that Jesus has is towards the end. What happens in the harvest when he sends out his angels to gather them? The importance is not what happens now because those two are left to grow together. The importance is on what happens in the harvest. This is more than just an explanation of why the church is a mixed multitude, why there are unbelievers and believers in the church. This has long been the interpretation of this parable. But I want to challenge that and say it's much more, much more than just a mixed multitude within the church. But Jesus is teaching a very profound lesson about the nature of the world and especially a sober warning about the day of judgment. So I want to look at both of these things, the presence of evil in the world and judgment, which is a warning for all of us. Good Bible study is learning how to ask the right questions of the text. And one good question to ask of parables in general is, to what question does this parable provide an answer? What are the people thinking about What's happening in first century Palestine that Jesus responds with this parable? Why is he telling them this this story? Why is the kingdom of God like this? How is that important? What question do the people are the people answering that Jesus is responding to? Now, if it is that the church which will come later is going to be a mixed multitude, then that could make sense, except that Jesus tells them to leave the evil presence be, to let it go, not to bother it. Let it grow alongside of the wheat. Well, that doesn't seem to be the same conclusion that Jesus draws when it comes to the church. The response of the sower to the servant is that they are to let the tares alone. If we applied that to the church, it would seem that God doesn't care that there is evil in the church. He doesn't care about the peace or purity of the church. Is that the conclusion that we should draw from this parable? 
I think that Jesus is drawing us to something different. For just a few chapters later in chapter 16, Peter makes this great confession. He says, after Jesus asks him, who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? He says this, you are the Christ that is the Messiah. Remember, all of the expectations that Israel has for who the Messiah is and what kind of kingdom he is bringing with him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now Jesus is closely identifying the ministry of Peter in the church with the keys of the kingdom. What do keys do? They open the way or they shut the way. They allow people into the kingdom of heaven or they block the way. These are the authority that God gives to the apostles for opening and shutting the kingdom of God in the church. This is the sphere, the place, the community of those who have been gathered together as the people of God who have their primary citizenship in heaven. And then, if he's not concerned with the purity of the church, why then, two chapters after this, in chapter 18, does he give them a process for how to conciliate problems within the body? Those who have sinned against one another, he gives them a process. And if they refuse to repent, he gives the authority to cut them off from the body of Christ. If Jesus is not concerned with the purity of the church, then why would he give us those instructions? But I want to challenge you. Jesus, in his explanation, says in verse 36, or I'm sorry, verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. That is the cosmos. That is the entirety of God's creation. Heaven and earth. You see, the kingdom of God is much more expansive than just the church. It includes the church because those are the gathered people who have their citizenship in heaven. But it is much more than just the church. We don't want to make an over-identification of the church with the kingdom of God. This is the trouble that happened in the medieval period where the church viewed itself as, um, as a kingdom with responsibility to bear the sword. Right? And all kinds of trouble happened when popes tried to exercise authority and power over kings. We don't want to go back to that. The kingdom of God is not identical with the church. The church is the community of those who have their citizenship in the kingdom of God. But it's not identical. Jesus wants us... He, the question... Uh, or one of the reasons why this interpretation that 
The church is going to be a mixed multitude. And Jesus is speaking about the presence of evil that will be in the church comes from Augustine, who used this line of argument and this parable to argue against the Donatists. Now, the Donatists believe that after a period of persecution, there were many who had defected from the faith. They had denied that Christ was their king, and they had denied the faith. And there were many of them who were priests. Well, then after that period of persecution was over, and those who had defected, those who had denied Christ, during this period of peace, they wanted to return. They wanted to come back to the church. And the Donatists said, if you have denied Christ, you have no part in the church. And they wanted to bar them from returning. And they especially wanted to say, if anyone who had been baptized by someone who defected, they needed to be rebaptized. They were concerned with the purity of the church. A good desire, but wrong application. And then Augustine takes this text and applies it to that situation. Now, I laud him for his desire to say, we should allow those to come back in repentance from their failures. But that is the wrong text for the wrong problem. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the question that this text, that this parable is answering? And I think a better, a better question is, if the kingdom of God is present now, why is there still evil? And when are you going to deal with it? When are you going to put down the unrighteous and bless the righteous? When are you going to establish your kingdom? Why is evil still present? When we looked last week at the mustard seed and leaven parable, I mentioned that the Jews of Jesus, they were already primed with expectations about who this king would be, who this Messiah would be, and what kind of kingdom he had. Jesus is correcting all of their speculations that they have um, ex- used to explain who the Messiah would be. They had sort of pigeonholed Jesus, right? They already had a design for him as king and kingdom. But Jesus is saying, not quite. That's not quite how it's going to be. And it's so bad that this is exactly what leads to his death. Right? What are they shouting in the end? Not our king. We have only one king, Caesar. They reject and they, they want it to be made explicit. Jesus said he was our king, but he's not. They rejected him because he didn't fit the mold. The Messiah was to come. He was going to bring an end to the age. He was going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He was going to disrupt society, overthrow the Romans, usher in a period of peace and prosperity where only the righteous would shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They wanted heaven on earth. They wanted it now. And Jesus is correcting their perception. You will notice that in Jesus' explanation of the parable to his disciples, he leaves a lot unexplained. Things left unspoken, we shouldn't press them for meaning. He wants them to focus on the fact that evil will remain within the kingdom of God. It will be allowed to grow up alongside of it. 
Jesus, as often the case in Scripture, does not give a defense for the problem of evil. He does give a source and a duration and assurance that judgment and the final putting away of evil will come. The mystery of God's kingdom is that it will have to grow right alongside evil in this world. And this means that we must not give in to despair when we look around and see evil. The reality that the world will continue to have two kinds of people does not mean that Christianity has failed. It doesn't even impugn God for allowing evil to continue to exist. The problem of evil is not a problem if, as Scripture teaches, God uses evil in this world to bring about a greater good. And that good far outweighs the evil that is in this present world. As Paul maintains, these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glories that will be revealed. The problem of evil is not, as my Vietnam vet friend thought, the death of God. We still wonder why. Why did God choose this path when it would have been easy enough for him to snuff out evil long ago. John Piper, in one of his best books called God is the Gospel, asks that very question, why God allows Satan to continue to work, to continue to keep people from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His answer is profound. He says, God's purpose is to defeat Satan in a way that glorifies not only Christ's raw power, but also his superior beauty and worth and desirability. Christ could simply exert sovereign power and snuff out Satan right then. He could have easily done that. But it would not display so clearly the superior worth of Jesus over Satan. It would not display the transforming beauty and power of Christ's meekness and humility and loneliness, and self-emptying love. The aim of the gospel is to put the glory of the crucified Christ on display and to shame Satan by the millions of people who turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and forsake Satan's lies in preference for the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Amen? The glory of the crucified Christ is the reality that God is pressing for. Without that, Christ's humility and meekness, His lowliness, His humiliation would not be on display. Jesus readily accepts that there is evil in the world and it must be so. Such that He enters end to our sin and our brokenness in this world by taking on the form of a man. He suffers the evil of this sin-sick world. And then in the greatest acts of evil, he endures the shame of death for sins that he didn't commit. The one righteous man gives himself as a substitute for wicked sinners like you and me. Therefore, out of the greatest act of of evil. The murder of God's innocent son becomes the greatest act of good, the salvation of all those who look to him in faith. 
You see, God is working even in the midst of evil for a greater good. And so the presence of evil does not deter our growth and development as sons of the kingdom, but it fosters and encourages it. John Frame puts it this way, In Scripture, God uses evil to test His servants, to discipline them, to preserve their lives, to teach them patience and perseverance, to redirect their attention to what is most important, to enable them to comfort others, to enable them to bear powerful witness to the truth, to give them greater joy when suffering is replaced by glory, to judge the wicked both in history and in the life to come, to bring reward to persecuted believers, and to display the work of God. The thrust of all these arguments is that although evil is to be deplored in and of itself, there are some respects in which it makes the world better. This parable teaches us that the kingdom of God, the sons of God, will develop and grow right alongside the sons of the evil one. There will always be evil in this world. And this this keeps us from getting too wide-eyed with op- optimism. That we not try or attempt to build our own utopias, to build heaven here on earth. The simple truth is no amount of legislation or education or medication will eradicate evil. It will always be a fact, a reality in this sin broken and dominated world. Now, I don't think Jesus is advocating for us to just sit idly by and allow wickedness. I don't think we should not intervene in our communities to work to promote biblical justice and work to protect the poor and the helpless from oppression and abuse. I think we should, but we should be always sober in what we can accomplish in this life. The complete destruction of evil, we have to wait until the end, until the harvest. But here, there is a warning. Jesus tells us parables because he wants us to identify with characters within them. Are you a son of the kingdom or are you a son of the evil one? Of course, everyone reading a story always casts themselves as the good guy, right? I'm Frodo or I'm Samwise. Nobody wants to be Gollum. But we have to ask ourselves, what character am I in this story that God is weaving? The question is, do you look like wheat or are you an imposter? The terrifying truth is that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. Then he will send out his angels to gather the wheat and the tares, one for eternal blessing, that place that the Jews looked for where the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, but one for eternal judgment. And God will purge the world of all evil. And he will gather them in one place, a place of fiery torment, where he will pour out his wrath upon them for all of eternity. This warning 
does two things for us. First, it's a sober reminder to examine our hearts to see who is your Father. Were you sown by a loving Heavenly Father? Do you have God as your Father? Are you a son of the kingdom? If you do, then that will be reflected in your life. Not in perfection, but by faith. Faith knows first that what we deserve is judgment, but what we receive is mercy. Because someone else has taken that judgment, namely Jesus. Not what does it mean to be wheat? It's not your ability to make yourself wheat, to make yourself a son of God, but it's by being united to the Son, by having faith and clinging tightly to the Son of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. For only in Him is true salvation found, and only in Him is the wrath of God satisfied. And only in Him do we shine like lights in the kingdom of our Father. But secondly, this warning teaches us to hope that amidst all of our suffering and pain, just as we emerge from this pandemic and we realize how much we went through this past year, if we don't frame all of our suffering under the sovereignty of God, knowing that His fatherly care is working everything together for our good, we will be crushed with despair at the evil and the pain and the suffering that we still have to undergo. But we know that Jesus has fixed the day where evil will finally be put down and the greatest good will be made clear as we do shine like lights in the kingdom of our Father. That means that we don't need to despair over the issues in the news today. We don't need to fret ourselves on Facebook and Twitter about the world that seems to be unraveling around us. Because we have this confidence. God is putting the world back together. And He will eradicate evil on that great day. And although we may not fully understand how whatever evil we are facing serves that good purpose, yet we can trust knowing that God is at work. In the meantime, we are to be people of beatitude. We are to be the people who are marked by the characteristics Jesus lays out in the beatitudes. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. That is those who have strength, but it's under reserve. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, evil is allowed to develop alongside the sons of God. But we do not lose hope. God is producing in you an eternal weight of glory that cannot be compared with these light momentary afflictions. Because the kingdom of God is present now, we must not despair that evil remains in the world, for God has fixed a day of judgment. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are burdened by the sinful, broken, evil world that is all around us. And yet we know that you have allowed this to grow grow alongside of the sons of the kingdom. Forgive us for falling into doubt and unbelief and teach us to hope and to trust that your perfect purposes are being worked out even now even in our suffering, even in our pain. Father, have that perfect work in each one of us so that we one day may shine as lights in the kingdom of our Father. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen.